Bulls Gold is delivered to you via the Barroom Network, now in its seventh year of providing podcasts about Chicago sports, movies, and more. Make sure to subscribe to the Barroom Network for free and easy downloads of its programming. And visit its merchandising store at deepdishtees.com to purchase t-shirts, hoodies, and mugs. Now, on with the show. I am Edward Schuler, joined as always by Salim Sudawala. Salim, how are you doing today, man? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, cold. Uh, we were uh, we're having some polar weather out here in Chicago right now. Uh, been trying to keep it as warm as possible. You know, you have to turn like the faucets on at night just a little bit, uh, so it doesn't uh, any pipes don't break. Uh, Stay indoors as much as possible. Uh, shout out to the people, you know, that have to, unfortunately, work outside or, you know, be outside in any uh, capacity. Um, you know, it's just rough. But, yeah, it's been uh, – I've mostly been indoors, but I had a lot of commuting back and forth, uh, certain places, but keeping warm otherwise. How are you, man? How is the North Carolina weather treating you? I'm sure you're – I think before we recorded, you said it's a little cold, but it's not like actual like real cold. It's like cold for the south. Yeah, it's cold for the south, and we get – we get the, we got a lot of storms last week, so a lot of rainfall, a lot of wind. And when in the south, whenever there's really bad weather, everything shuts down. So you, they tell you don't leave your home. You know, everyone goes to the grocery store, and they buy – milk and bread up i don't know what they're doing with the milk and bread but they buy it all up and you can't get none they buy the eggs too so it, that's how you know it's going to get crazy in the south so i i was been in my house like pretty much pretty much all week until i went to travel to uh south carolina so yeah that that's how it is in the south man they they panic over anything i remember when school got canceled just because there was just like a little bit of ice on the road so i'm in mean, <laughs> A little bit of ice on the road is like a whole lot of nothing, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's fun. No, it's always funny to see when immediately when there's some like some kind of weather catastrophe or one way or another, people go up buy gallons and gallons of milk. It's like you know you're not gonna drink all that, right? You're gonna throw half of it away because it's gonna expire like in a month. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? You're not gonna drink, you're gonna drink maybe three con- of those, maybe if you have a family. And yeah. then the like the rest like nine that you decide to buy is gonna be tossed out the uh, out in the garbage and you wasted money. It's like yeah. I don't know. It's always funny seeing people do that. Yeah, I mean, I I mean I hope people in North Carolina and South Carolina have been enjoying their milk sandwiches. Um last yeah. <laughs> tasted really well. But you know, we, we got a lot to to get into today. Uh it was a very very uh newsworthy weekend for the beloved and uh not in not in the way that you would hope for uh but we're, we're gonna dive into everything that happened uh on friday 
with the game against the Golden State Warriors where the Bulls had a pretty good lead at half. We're playing really well and uh, just fell apart in the second half against the Warriors. And of course, we're going to we're going to talk about the ring of honor. We're going to save that for a little bit later. But of course, everyone knows what happened there. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. But we're, we're going to get into a lot of Bulls Warriors stuff today. And the, the last few shows, I feel like we've been talking about Zach Levine and uh, his, his trade uh, situation. And we've been secretly hoping that the Golden State Warriors, uh, out of the kindness of their heart, uh, can bless us with a very favorable trade <laughs> that includes some of the Warriors' young players. Uh, I, I feel like we're not asking for much there, but we're going to get into that and we're going to talk about this Bulls-Warriors game and how their season has progressing. So joining us uh, to, to talk Bulls and Warriors, he's joining Bulls Gold for the first time. He is a contributor to Switch Theory and he also uh, co-hosts the Warriors Invitational Podcast. Charlie Cummings, man. Charlie, welcome to Bulls Gold, man. Happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. While we're all uh, sheltered in here with varying degrees of cold, might as well talk a little ball. Uh, definitely good or bad time to be talking some bull some bulls, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> I guess you could say the same for the Warriors, too. Yeah. Yeah, we're uh, – I mean – the the Bulls and Warriors, I feel like, have completely different situations, but they we both sit here with the same well, basically, I think the same record. I mean, the, the Warriors are, um, I think like eighteen twenty one Bulls are eighteen and twenty two, I believe. So, I mean, pretty much at the same spots, and the Warriors again, drastically different situation. But it feels like both of these teams are really trying to claw for some solutions right now, and it was really interesting seeing both of these teams match up on Friday. Yeah, it was it was a heck of a game, too. I mean, you know, we're going to get into more of why this was, I think, probably a bit of a disappointment for both teams in some respects, and especially with all the shenanigans at halftime, uh, if you want to call it that generously. But, no, it was it was some great ball between those two. Um, you know, very, very back and forth, a lot of leads being blown both ways. Um, so, yeah, no, it was – it was, a, it was a fun one. I feel like, you know, even though Warriors-Bulls, you know, obviously not getting to play each other too often, something always happens. Uh, and no matter what is going on between these two teams, like something crazy is always going to go down when these two play each other. Yeah, I, I'm I feel wondering. like Clay always remembers, like, ah, Clay Thompson against the Bulls. Like, he just remembers, like, or he, 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 he vividly remembers that 63-point uh, game that he had where he was just – uh, I think the world was that he dribbled like 11 times in, ten, in the entire game or something, something ridiculously small. Like he had like less than maybe 10 dribbles and scored 63 points against the Bulls uh, in the <laughs> blowout in, in the UC uh, where everyone lost their minds, where we had like uh, sports uh, Chicago media people just going completely me heads. Like, how do you let that happen? Uh, and you know, blowing their gasket. So yeah, that Clay again had a, a throwback Clay game, if you will, in, in ways. No, he really did. Like he, he was really getting it going off movement. Um, you know, that's been, it's been kind of one of the weird frustration points for me this season. Is those first ten games, Clay did not look good, and so everyone, everyone I saw going around, you know, the major sports media outlets was like, oh, is this it? Is he finally done? Are the Warriors finally done? And, you know, that second question 
to be determined. But Clay Thompson is not done playing good basketball. Like he's sitting around forty percent on threes, uh, getting up about 10, 10 threes a game uh, since those first ten games of the season. So he's still a dead eye shooter. Uh, still absolutely getting it done when the Warriors need him to on the offensive end of the floor. Uh, but now that, you know, this uh, is he washed uh, storyline has kind of ended. No one wants to talk about the good play he's putting out there, uh, which, you know, I guess that kind of speaks to the sports media culture we got out there is they just want to, they would, they want to harp on the downfall, but when the downfall doesn't happen, they're just like, Oh, well, I guess we'll wait another year. So if any real regression, sorry, I didn't want to cut you off there. Any real regression for Clay is more so defensively, if anything, not really what he brings offensively as a, as a spacer, as a gravity guy, and uh, if you will. Yeah, no, he really has taken some steps back on that end. Um, the good thing being Clay is that you know now they don't rely on him as much for point of attack defense. Uh, granted, they don't really rely on anyone for point of attack defense right now, but. You know, if he's in more of a help role, if his job is to just be in rotation, be really long, get active on the boards when he can, and contest a whole lot of shots around the perimeter, then he can still do that. So it's tough not having him be, like, the go-to, he's going to take the tough guard and wing matchups guy anymore. But, you know, that's not really his problem. When both your legs explode over the course of two years and you're 33 years old, Right. Yeah, you're probably you're probably not going to be the all defense type guy anymore. Right. When when you were watching this game, what would you say is the biggest difference? I mean, outside of shots started falling, I guess. I mean, the first half playing stuff were were like four for seventeen, uh, in that first half, and then in the second half, like Salim said, they remember that they're playing in the United Center, and that you know crazy stuff always happens when you play the Bulls in the United Center, so. It, it seems like they found their their rhythm, so to speak. But, you know, the Bulls were up by 13 points in that first half and looking pretty good. Their perimeter shots were falling overall. And then the Bulls kind of get cold in the second half and the Warriors start kind of finding it. So what would you say were the biggest adjustments that you noticed uh, from Clay and Steph in that backcourt when it came to really reversing things around? Yeah, I'd say one of the bigger things, I mean, obviously shots falling, is a huge part of that. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna win on many nights where your two best offensive players come out four seventeen. But a big part of that was the possession game, just winning on the boards constantly, uh, doubling the bulls up in offensive rebounds. Um, you know, as much as the Warriors do have problems with size in general and just not being able to compete with teams athletically. They've consistently been a very good offensive rebounding team this year, currently sitting at third in the league. And, you know, that's part of that game is, you know, there's not many games you're going to win where the other team outshoots you from the field, from the three-point line, and from the free-throw line. But if you're getting way more of those shots, then you have a little bit more of a margin for error. And, you know, the Bulls – like, all credit to them. They were just hitting shots over and over again. Kobe White was looking like the all-star kind of player he's been this season. Um, but, you know, when the Warriors go out and beat a team like Chicago on the glass, a team that really should be winning the rebounding battle against Golden State, then that's how you get to squeeze away with a game like that. And 
that was really it for me, just being more physical and wanting those extra possessions more and more. That was out, right? Uh, that was a big acquisition for you guys was Chris Paul in that Jordan Poole trade. Um, obviously, you guys miss him um, as far as what he provides. Some some interesting lineup data. I think the, the, so the third highest five-man lineup in, that the Warriors have played so far this season with it has Chris Paul, Clay, Looney, Wiggins, and Steph at a plus 16.92 in 30, 93 minutes. Uh, like I said, that's the third best lineup in the in the Warriors in a five-man. Um, what have you seen with Chris Paul this season, what he provides, like I said? And is that something you saw fit and seamlessly, like the way it has? And did you also see Chris Paul as like a long-term as the season goes on, went on, or something where you thought, okay, maybe they could still trade Chris Paul for an, a different type of player, more with more size that could fit with the Warriors a little better. Yeah, I think that was sort of the expectation going into this because Chris Paul, uh, non guaranteed contract on the books for next year, but I think it's let's see, yeah, thirty million next year so that gets you more or less into the range of a max type player that you're trying to trade for so i think from the warriors standpoint it was clearly jordan Poole is not bringing what we need let's buy low on a guy like chris paul uh after you know having immediately been traded by phoenix and that whole thing flaring out um the idea was let's get someone who's safe with the ball. The Warriors have been one of the worst turnover teams in the league in recent seasons. So let's get someone who can still make plays but not excessively give the ball away. Uh, but the real problem there is that, you know, Jordan Poole, for all the faults he had, the guy could fill up, fill up the box score, uh, at least in terms of points. And now they really don't have that scoring threat anymore from Chris Paul because he's just been exceedingly passive on that end. Um, you know, usage rate is not something that necessarily dictates how involved the player is in the offense, but it does dictate how often they're involved in the results. And this has been the lowest usage rate of Chris Paul's career up to date. That's not just a product of, Oh, Steph Curry's on his team. Like, Oh, He's got Clay Thompson. He's got these other guys that need shots. That's been him being passive because, you know, he's still going around. He's making plays. He's still like the point god that we knew from a playmaking standpoint, but teams are just daring him to score and he's not really, he's not really returning it. So that's been, that's been kind of a struggle point for this Warriors team is they can put together some really solid bench lineups, one of the better benches in the league, but when he goes and plays with the starters, when he plays with Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, it doesn't make them defend Steph and Clay any differently because they're looking at Chris Paul. They're looking, hey, this guy's not getting to the rim anymore. He's not getting shots up the way he used to. So if we die, if we die a death by a million cuts, you know, just by Chris Paul beating us in the mid range, then, you know, we'll, we'll take it. And he hasn't really gone out and proven that he can be the scorer that can beat teams in that way. So when you look at the maybe come the trade deadline or you know whatever that is, do you think that they'll look to make a move that is almost a um, 
kind of response to maybe how how that Chris Paul trade has worked out for them and the fact that it's not really, you know, panning out so much right now, but still trying to get something that can kind of fit a little bit more, like you mentioned, that they're missing that aspect that Jordan Poole brought as being someone who can light it up from time to time. Do you see them really trying to, you know, get someone who can feel that? Yeah, I would say so. I think the development from Brandon Pajemski has been a really huge part of this equation is that now they feel pretty comfortable in having another ball handler present. Um, he can be, you know, more or less the default backup, like guy who runs things for the bench units. And they can stagger things more around a little bit to kind of get that primary ball handler usage for their bench units. So it's had that's had some of an effect, I think, on how the trade Paul, I mean, the trading Chris Paul conversations would go. Because now you look at this team, you especially with the struggles that Andrew Wiggins has had, you're looking at a team that needs more athleticism and defense on the wings. You're looking for more scoring juice, really, but just general rim protection and defense from the center spots. Um, and Chris Paul, if he's, you know, unfortunately injured, so that makes it even tougher to evaluate where he fits into this roster. But Chris Paul being a diminished form of himself and not staying on the floor, I think it really opens up the possibility that they use him as that salary. Uh, at this trade deadline to go get a player that they need, but go get some more, some more length, some more athleticism, some more defense. You just brought up Andrew Wiggins here and surprise, uh, you know, surprisingly he actually had a really good game versus the Bulls. He was a big factor, especially in that second half uh, with the comeback that the Bulls did end up making. Uh, you saw a little bit more uh, def better defensive effort from him. Um, he did a, a some good job uh, defending uh, Kobe in a few possessions late, later in the game. Um, what what have your thoughts been on, on Andrew Wiggins as far as what he like? Why his regression has happened? Obviously, last season uh, there was a personal matter that uh, came about that affected his obviously ability to stay in shape and come back and kind of you know play. Uh, continue to kind of play because off that. But then when he came back into this season, it's kind of been the same. I'm not sure like if he really had an offseason where he was able to do a lot of workouts and things like that. Uh, have you seen his regression be similar to like just him being back to his like Minnesota days or is it just something different that you're seeing overall? Yeah, I think it's different. You know, I feel like people have kind of tried to compare it to that Minnesota day where – you know, we all saw Andrew Wiggins in Minnesota. He was doing too mm -hmm. much offensively. He was taking, like, seven, eight mid-range jumpers a game. Uh, he wasn't really locked in on the defensive end. Like, we saw him with that Warriors title team where it's just like, oh, my God, this is, like, an incredible mm -hmm. defender that I'm watching develop before our eyes. And then all of that has just kind of gone away. Um, you know, he's not being over aggressive like he was in Minnesota. He's being less aggressive than he needs to be. Um, it seems like not only has his confidence gone away, but his touch has just completely gone too. Um, and you never know which comes first, you know, like, is it, Oh, I started off not too confident. I missed a whole bunch of shots. Now my confidence is just shot. 
or did he not have that confidence in the first place and it's affecting his game? It's hard to say. And, you know, since we also don't know what was happening with him last year with all the personal stuff he's dealing with, obviously you hope that that is at least resolved to some degree or that he's, Mm -hmm. you know, in a better space. And, you know, it's a whole other thing where you don't want to like assign, oh, how is he playing on the basketball court to how's he doing in his life in general? But, you know, you kind of have to wonder if whatever is going on with him personally has still been affecting him um, because he just looks really checked out. Um, I think one thing that really got him going was the move to the bench and these really just shockingly open trade discussions for a team that is usually kind of not been heavily involved in rumors and the big things they do don't, you don't tend to hear about them until the last minute. Um, But now going to the bench, he's played a lot better. You know, you guys saw those results against the bulls, but you know, he's had a much more productive run recently. And so you kind of wonder if the benching with the combination of the trade talks is hopefully what a fire under, under him a little bit. How do you expect things to go when Draymond Green returns to to the when it's to the team? Do you expect that there really won't be much of a I won't say like transition, but much of an adjustment overall? Do you think that just kind of everything will just pick, be business as, as usual when he comes back from his suspension? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, the problem is that then uh, business as usual has been disappointing <laughs> to say the least. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. I think it's really interesting to me that, you know, first game back today at a point in Memphis right now, um, he starts off the bench and, you know, maybe that is a conditioning thing. Maybe they're like, Hey, you basically just sat for 12 games. So we're going to get you back up to speed first. Um, but you also wonder if him coming off the bench is Steve Kerr trying to like soft play. Hey, maybe him coming off the bench is a good thing. And, you know, maybe he can be more of that playmaker in the absence of Chris Paul for some of these bench lineups. They have a decent amount of scores who can move around him. And maybe, you know, attaching him to Trace Jackson Davis helps TJD come along in a few ways. Yeah, right there. Oh, man. That's my guy. Yeah. Yeah, no, Trace is uh Trace is looking pretty damn good for nearly undrafted rookies. So um I I do wonder, especially with the run that they've gotten from Jonathan Kaminga, he's got double digit points in something like eighteen straight games now. Uh he was mm-hmm. going off against the Bulls. He's been having so many great games recently. Um so I, I wonder if that's something that they're hesitant to toy with because he's really solidified himself as a guy who should be in the starting lineup right now. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, part of me wonders, are they just going to keep starting him and keep having Draymond come off the bench until, you know, maybe the wheels start to fall off and Kaminga's play is a little less consistent. But, you know, for right now, the starting lineup is cruising. So, you know, it feels like, Draymond, even Draymond being what Draymond is, don't mess with the good thing. Yeah, I didn't yeah, expect. Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. sorry, go ahead, Ed. No, 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 go ahead, Ed. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I honestly didn't expect Kaminga to <laughs> be the one that was going to go off on the Bulls uh, in the last game. I mean, I know he's had 
a few ups and downs, but I think he still shows really, really promising flashes overall. But I mean, his game on his game on Friday just looked. I mean, he looked fantastic. I mean, of course, it helps when you're just making a lot of shots, but I mean, he, he just looked fantastic overall. Yeah, no, he was he was playing a really good aggressive brand. Um, yeah. I think that's the thing that stands out to me is you know if you're an average shooter and you're playing with Steph and Clay Thompson, you're going to get left open a lot. Yeah. And it's on you to decide, hey, okay, this is kind of my shot. I'm in rhythm. I should take this one versus I'm a better athlete than whoever is guarding me. <laughs> you know, even in, even by NBA standards, like if Jonathan Kuminga is taking on assignments uh, that aren't the guys guarding Steph and Clay. Uh, chances are he can blow by most of those guys. He can jump over and through most of those guys. So is he consistently attacking when the defense is in rotation, getting himself into the paint, um, especially getting himself to the line, which he did a lot against Chicago. Um, That's really when his game thrives to me is when he's constantly on the move downhill and you know, I get it. It's really tempting when you're left open all the time and you have, like, confidence in your shot and you right. want to just take those shots over and over. Right. Um, but his best results have always come when he's putting pedal to the metal, going right at the rim and just trying to out-muscle and out-physical everybody. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was actually surprised that he had fallen out of the rotation a little bit. Um. I guess when you bring up the fact that he was probably settling a lot, uh, Kerr wasn't too happy with that and kind of reined him back a little bit in, in that regard. Is, is that was kind of what was happening with him with some of those minutes? Yeah, I think he was pretty open and saying, like, I'm frustrated by how this has gone. And he was well within his rights, too, uh, because, you know, he had a really, he had a really, really great stretch. Um, even that double-digit stretch I was talking about, he ended up back on the bench for some of those games. And I think he really felt, you know, it all it all came to a head in that Denver game where he's playing a great game. We have a huge early lead on them. Uh, I believe it was, I was up to like 20 points or something in the fourth quarter. And for whatever reason, Kuminga sits the last 18 minutes of the game. So... Even even as you're watching this lead slip away, at no point did it occur to them, hey, why don't we put the guy back in who's been doing really well and creating rim pressure? Um, I think he had six rim attempts by himself in that game uh, before getting benched, and in those last 18 minutes, the Warriors had one rim attempt as a team. Um, so I think that's when it kind of came to a head, and he just said, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing a lot of things right. I'm doing a lot of the things that you guys have asked of me, and it's producing results. And now i got to sit here on the bench and watch this lead completely crumble against the defending champions, one that I work to build. Mm. Because, well, because you don't trust me? Like, what, what is it that's going on here? And so I think that's when a lot of those frustrations really came to a head. Let's... Let's shift real quick into into the bull side of things, especially when we look at, um, you know, when we look at how this team is what this team has gone through recently in terms of playing without Zach Levine and getting 
finally kind of getting into a zone, playing the ideal style of basketball that um, Billy Donovan's Billy Donovan and you know AK and Eversley have been really wanting to see from this team in the long term, and then having to incorporate Zach Levine back into that. So um, just kind of like a really weird development overall because you never would have expected that the Bulls would be in a position where they would be looking at Zach Levine as someone that they would have to really um, kind of adjust back into what they were doing after playing really well for so long. But from from your from your vantage point, how do you think the Bulls have looked with Zach Levine and without him so far? Because now, you know, when you look at what Kobe White has been doing without him and now you're putting Zach Levine in that same backcourt again, it we, we've seen them play before before plenty of times obviously but the dynamic is so much different I think this time around now that Kobe is playing at the level he has been so um, what what have you really noticed about what the team has looked like with and without Zach yeah I think that's really interesting because you know I think part of it is just how these guys grew up playing Mm -hmm. Um, you know like take just Kobe White for example You, you could apply this to just about any NBA player they grew up, played, you know, high school, AAU, all through college, overseas, where they were the guy. And no one else was, like, even in their wheelhouse to be demanding the touches that they get. And now you get drafted to the Bulls, and it's like, hey, Zach Levine's here. He's the number one. DeMar DeRozan, he's going to take a lot of touches. Nikola Vucevic, he needs to get his. So you, now you're all the way, like, fourth, fifth, sixth, down the pecking order to the start. Um, and now Kobe gets this stretch, you know, a few years into his career where all the attention is on him. No one else can do creation like he can without Levine out on the floor. And he's really coming into his own. So I think that's, you know, just a general development trend that you see throughout the NBA is guys are much more accustomed to playing when they are the guy than having to play off of others. And especially when, you know, with a guy like Levine, who's been at this level, at this all-star level of scoring level for the better part of a decade now, and Kobe White is just starting to step into his own, you know, that takes adjustment from both guys because, you know, Levine's played with some talented players, um, but, you know, even Minnesota days here, I, I don't think he's played with as well-rounded of a perimeter scorer and just general shooting threat that Kobe White has been. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that takes a little bit of a two-way adjustment, and it, it makes sense to me that there would be some rough patches with them together with Kobe starting to step into his own. And Levine, you know, having done things the way he's done for the last near decade, he's like, all right, now I got to adjust – uh, because I don't have to be the offensive center of attention anymore. I have other guys that I can go to and play off of who can in turn create advantages for me. Um, so that's you know, that's normally one thing I look to is, you know, it can there can always be rough spots when you have a team that has established offensive players and suddenly someone else is breaking out and forcing themselves into the conversation. It takes a lot of time for everybody to get used to that. Taking further thoughts on Kobe White from you and what you've seen from the, this season. So the Cavs are playing. Uh, the Bulls are playing the Cavs today, and they asked JB Bickerstaff um, 
about how to, you know, defend Kobe Wett. And he mentioned how you have to contain him. Uh, we've seen personally development from him as far as his processing is concerned and even playing in that pick and roll, uh, handling the ball and being pretty good at taking care of the ball in general. Like, what have you seen from him as far as his development and maybe what further things we can maybe look for in, in your mind? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, obviously you guys have watched a whole lot more bowls than I have, but in what I've seen, I'm glad you mentioned the pick and roll handling too as well, because it feels like not only is he taking care of the ball more, but he's making more mm-hmm. plays this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been a much more willing uh, guy to make layoff passes, make skips to the corner. Um, even the little things like, you know, if there's not much of an advantage created in the pick and roll, uh, just, you know, take a, take a dribble, like pull it back out, be more methodical in what you're doing. Um, so I think a lot of it in his case is that the scoring talent has been there, but the defense just expects him to hunt for a shot. And now that he's, I think, you know, played with a little more nuance, he's spreading the ball out a little bit, um, taking care of it as well, like he said. Now that opens up more opportunities to show what he can do as a scorer. And – I mean, the com- the confidence for him just jumps off the page. Like in that Warriors game, he he seemed like every shot he took, he thought he was going in, um, and most of them did. So you know, he was yeah, yeah. he's kind of right in that perspective. Yeah. Um, but that's been the thing for me is you know I feel like people uh, usually the reverse is talked about when people talk about uh, you know scoring more to open up. Playmaking when you have a guy who's a good passer, but in this case, I think he needed to be more of a threat to create for others in order to open up what he can really do as a scoring player. Right. Yeah, I, I think, and and we you mentioned just the nuance overall in his game, and when we've been talking about Kobe, the thing that surprised me the most about Kobe is just how much he's been adding pass scoring like you mentioned defense but he's starting to fill up the stat sheet a lot too like I mean you look you go back and look at his games he has games where he has like seven eight nine rebounds like he, he rebounds the ball pretty well he's getting assist overall too so it, it's it's really solid just to see him do more than just being a a scorer especially when he's just what like you know six four six five playing the point guard position so it almost makes me wonder if that dimension of his game is going to be something long-term that continues to get even better as well. But yeah, you, you mentioned it. I just think the way that Kobe now, when, when we look back at his rookie season, it, it seemed like he was really playing almost kind of at one speed and just trying to play really fast and beat people that way. And we knew he had that speed, but now he's playing at multiple speeds and he's leveraging that against the defenders and he's really just keeping them on a string. And it's really just a nice technical uh, part of the game that he's really added overall. So yeah, I mean, Kobe is Kobe's really playing just, just lights out. Let me, let me ask you this about Kobe. I've seen this floated around a little bit, but when you look at what, when you, when you think about him long-term, do you think that he's better suited to play at the one as he's doing right now, the Bulls don't really have a true point guard, but, or do you think that he's better off kind of moving over to that, to that two long-term as well? Like what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's an interesting question, especially with, you know, like positions have never been 
you know, they're obviously relevant nowadays, but it's more like the responsibility. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think the interesting question for the Bulls too is if we make some serious trades at the deadline and, you know, guys like Busevich, Levine, DeMar are all on the block, Mm -hmm. um, what kind of what kind of run can we get of having Kobe as like the guy, the lead ball handler? Um, what can we get out of him in the, you know, 30, 40 games that follow? And does it give us the confidence that he can be sort of the number one, uh, the primary engine of the offense? Um, because, you know, that's, that's another thing too with how talented the NBA is right now is you kind of got to look around and think, oh, okay, this guy is the one that brings the juice to our offense, who really keeps everyone flowing, keeps everyone involved. But at what level is he at? Um, you know, it kind of goes back to like that that really, really stupid Jalen Brunson conversation that was being had where it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like oh, he's, he's great, but like how good is he? Um, and, you know, that's a little silly from media perspective, but – when you're a team, you got to look at it and say, okay, we can try to give him the reins for a bit. We'll see how that goes. But does this give us an idea of if we have like a franchise altering kind of offensive talent or a guy who is really, really good and could be the number one for a playoff team, but do we need to add that supplemental help? Um, that's why it's kind of been frustrating seeing Levine injured because I really want them to go and figure out like, Hey, is this sort of like a one, two pairing where you have two serious offensive threats, both that come about it in different ways and are different kinds of scores. Um, can you pair them together and see how high the offense can go? And more importantly, you know, with a guy like Kobe, a guy who's as prolific of a shooter as he is, a uh, thing I always watch for a primary type ball handler like him is what do you do once the ball is out of your hands? Are you relocating? Are you cutting through the lane? Are you making the defense work for it? Um, because there are so many guys where everything's run through them and then they pass the ball off and then they just stand there on the wings, like waiting for it to come back so they can restart things. Um, so that's that's kind of a big tell if you know if Kobe is the kind of guy who can go out there and be more like a number two and, you know, move off the ball and do different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But at the, you know, then have the nights where he really feels like it's going and he can go out and he can take over and he can be like a number one for those nights he needs to be. Yeah, I think, so I, I, I agree with you. The position is not really relevant one or two. Um, it's about how, how his strengths and his role is. Uh, I've seen this season as far as like, um, like as far as playing off ball when he repositions himself on the court when he kind of gives the ball off to Demar and then relocates uh, to give Demar space and when that defender comes off to kind of trap Demar, Demar is able to kick it out to Kobe for a, a good open three. I've seen that and as far as ball handling, I think. More so, I, I I'm I'm pretty feel good about him being like a secondary ball handler, uh, and maybe doing more of like the the side action, second action creator. Uh, I think that 
has been a big part of what Kobe we've seen success from Kobe this year, allowing DeMar to be that primary ball handler and then playing off of that really well. And he's done that like brilliantly at times this season, in my opinion. Yeah, I like seeing that too, where, you know, specifically in that Bulls Warriors game, I was watching him and just how many different things he was doing. But that's one thing that I really liked is, you know, DeMar, you know what DeMar is. Like, DeMar's like, clear aside, let him go to work, let him do his thing in the post. He's one of, if not the best, like, post-scoring guards we've seen in I don't know how long. Um, but, yeah, he would, you know, he would go over, he would recognize the situation, he gets the ball into DeMar, and then he's gone. You know, um, right. and that's the thing you really got to appreciate because that's knowing your teammates, that's knowing what they want to do, but that's also recognizing, hey, if I take myself away and I take my help away from him, it's going to make the other defenders on the other side of the floor have to react in a different way based on what DeMar is doing. And then that can end up creating an advantage for me. So it's like helping others help yourself, you know. Right. What do you think about um with, with Zach Levine now back into the starting lineup? The Bulls are kind of altering things again, and Patrick Williams is uh, coming off the bench the last couple of games. What do you think about how that ties into kind of like his overall development this year and trying to build more momentum? Do you think do you think sending him to the bench for this season is potentially a a setback and it kind of like limits him a little bit more going forward for the rest of the season? Or do you think he can still be able to kind of pick up, pick up like where he had been playing uh, as a starter and showing some serious momentum and some really good, like strong role player potential overall. So, I mean, what do you make, what do you make of that move um, overall? That's a tough one. And, you know, I think the Warriors are kind of in the same spots where they're wondering if we are running this guy with a bench unit that has limitations in terms of playmaking, how much is this going to affect what we want them to do long-term? Mm. Um, in Patrick Williams's case, I feel like especially because the defense is so apparently there, like every time I watch him, it just really pops like his activity, the athleticism, the attention to detail, like so many things he does on that end are exceptional. And I think that's why I would lean on keeping him in the starting lineup. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of roster crunch to figure out once mm -hmm. Levine gets back. But, you know, if he's going to be playing off of some serious creators in, you know, in Kobe, in Levine, um, in DeMar, Vucevic, like if he is that guy on the floor who the defense is daring them to beat, I think that's a great way to build confidence in a player who has offensive limitations right now, especially his aggression. Um, so, you know, if they're stepping in and they're saying, hey, everyone's going to key on Zach, everyone's going to key on Kobe, you're going to be the guy who's open and you're going to have to make plays. And whether that's just hitting open shots or finding opportunities to attack a closeout, get downhill, um, either put himself at the line or make plays for others. That's where that's where I think it makes a lot more sense to keep him around um, because really the only question mark for me for Patrick now is the offense because the defense seems ready 
to be that kind of wing rotation player that they need. Yeah, I think like defensively, the development has been uh, really good from where he was his rookie year and how he understands scheme and coverages. Uh, the offensive end has been the slow churn development because I think a lot of it came down to processing for him and understanding how to be even a role player, like when to cut, when to move off uh, of of playing off of these like big three guys of Zach, uh, DeMar, and Booch. So I think that's been like the hurdle that was the toughest for him to get over, um, which I think he's done this season. I mean, the last five games or so has been rough again for him, but I think that has more to do with his ankle issue. Uh, he's been in and out of the excuse me, in and out of the lineup because of that ankle. And tonight he's out again. He's I think he's going to miss back to back games now because of that soreness in the ankle. But yeah, I think like I said, the processing on the offensive end is like the biggest thing that was probably holding him back, and we've seen a jump in that area. Yeah, that's um. You know, a player for me that I look, I feel like who are following similar paths is Denny Avdia on the Wizards, mm. um, where you could see right off the bat, like, this guy's really long. He plays really well on the ball. He's starting to figure out the off-ball defensive concepts, which are always a really tough thing for wing, young wings to pin down. Um, but early, you know, he started off with Scott Brooks as his coach. And, you know, they had Bradley Beal, they had Kyle Kuzma, they had a lot of creators. And so to Denny, they were just like, all right, you stand in the corner, you make the shots when you're open, and then you take a couple dribbles and pass and get the ball rotating again if it's not. And then when Wes Unseld comes along, he's now starting to develop that role a little bit more. And he's like, hey, we don't really have a lot to play for right now we have a lot to play for in the future so we're going to give you some more responsibilities we're going to give you not necessarily a green light um but you know more of like a yellow light as a playmaker like hey do some things when you're called upon take more aggressive shots going downhill um try to figure out where you stand as an offensive player beyond just you know standing in the corners cutting and Occasionally, you know, getting some closeout attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where I think is another interesting point. If the Bulls, you know, really decide to hit the reset button at the trade deadline is do they just go, hey, you know, reins are off, Patrick. Like you, you got to go out there. You got to be aggressive. And we're telling you to be aggressive. And if you can't, then that's on you. But, you know, we're, we're giving you the option to do what you have to do offensively and try to make a little bit more happen. So that's kind of where I, where I view it is, Hey man, you know, like you're already a pretty solid player, but this team has decisions to make. We have decisions to make in regards to your future here. And if you don't want to step up this offensive aggression, then it kind of ties our hands a bit. And, you know, we have to start looking at you differently. Kind of, kind of staying on that same topic with the trade deadline because, I mean, we really don't know what the Bulls are trying to do. I've seen so many conflicting reports, and it seems like the Bulls may even try to to walk that fine line of being sellers and 
trying to stay competitive as well. I, I don't know. They may even try to buy. Who knows? But um, it, it seems like this team very much still wants to compete and they don't want to, you know, blow it all up to to that degree. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what that looks like. But when it comes to the Bulls and the Warriors potentially being trade partners, we've seen – I, I'm not even I'm not even sure where the reports of can't come from, but we've seen uh, some things that the Warriors probably wouldn't be that interested in taking on Zach Levine's uh, contract. And we've always we've seen some speculation that Alex Caruso may be someone that would fit the Warriors a lot better, for, especially with that defensive impact and being a you know battle tested veteran with experience. So um, when it, when it comes to those pieces. Break down for us what do you that what you think makes the most sense for where the Warriors at when it comes to a Zach Levine and Alex Caruso deal, whether it's combined or individually. Yeah, I think the Levine question is interesting to me. I think if he wasn't, you know, if that contract wasn't viewed as sort of a negative asset, it would be different. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why the Warriors being involved interested me too is because of their cap situation. Uh, and how deep they are into the tax, they're more or less incentivized to take on contracts that go beyond this year. Um, You know, like a rental doesn't really help you if you don't re-sign that player and that money's just gone. Uh, You know, if they they had a player making 10, 20-ish million and that guy hits free agency and they don't re-sign him, there's no replacement coming because of how deep into the tax they are. So, I mean... Uh, that that's where uh, you know guys like Russo, um, guys who's been not only fit into the cap shot this year but contribute right now, uh, I think make for more of an interesting conversation. And Caruso, especially with uh, the way the way Gary Payton has been, well, not playing in this case, uh, with his injury situation, the fact that he's on the books for a decent amount of money. It really does make a lot of sense because they need better point of attack defenders, but they also need point of attack defenders that can actually contribute to the offense, you know, hit a lot of shots, which Alex has definitely done this year. Hmm. Um, It's actually kind of crazy how good he's been. He's 98th percentile effective field goal percentage for guards right now. That's just wild. (laughs) Um, And not only is he, you know, a guy who can – make shots, make the defense pay for leaving them open, but he can run plays now and then. And, you know, that's the thing. I love Gary Payton, still like a top-tier guard defender to me, but if you're not really getting any drop-off in terms of the defense and you can add a player that uh, opposing teams actually have to respect or else they'll get beaten by, uh, then that really, I think, would change things for the Warriors. Um, So Caruso is definitely someone I've had a lot of interest in. I joke that Caruso is going to become the greatest three and D player this season uh, ever. Uh, when he was he was like just nailing uh, open threes, a lot of his looks were literally clean. And this season, like yeah, like you said, you know, you mentioned his effective field goal percentage, but he's shooting uh, on volume a career high four attempts a game, and he's hitting forty one percent on those. Uh, so that I mean, you, you add his defense in to that and his defense he's a maniac defensively like you the things that he does 
like obviously like the the transition stuff with the steals and stuff that comes up for sure in the box scores, but a lot of stuff that he does, you just watch him play on defense and he's running like enough for like like a mile in one possession, just the how often he just runs around the court. It's just entertaining just to watch him alone and how how many people he defends in one possession. It's it's insane. So yeah, I can I can totally see like the Warriors wanting him. I my thoughts on Zach were interesting just because I obviously you know with the contract conversation with Zach is what it is. But in an ideal situation, like the way Zach can shoot off ball I felt like that's a really good fit in what the work with with playing off of stuff. And I think obviously there's been times where Zach has been a little more reluctant to be off ball permanently, but maybe someone like Steve Kerr and Steph could kind of convince him a little better. uh, And he would want to fall in line a little bit more to be that kind of guy that can play off ball. Kind of not exactly like Clay, because obviously Clay is just a different as far as skill set and, and processing and understanding how the movement works. Uh, it's not on the same, Zach's just not on the same level as that, but kind of in that same mold a little bit. I, I thought that maybe Zach could fit in well like that. Uh, what are your thoughts as far as that's concerned with Zach's fit on that offensive side? Yeah, so I do think he would be a great fit for this offense. Um, you know, I think that's, that's one of the really weird things when you try to break down who's a fit for the Warriors. Um, you know, going back to, like, the KD days, because that's something that I I tend to think about when they talk about the Levine conversation. As great as Clay is, um, you know, Levine would pretty comfortably be the second-best scorer that Steph Curry would have ever played with if a trade goes down. And... That's a concept that I think that they have done a good job at consistently drilling in is there is no dominant ball handler. There are guys who are dominant in terms of their usage, like Steph, but those looks are going to come from dribble handoffs. They're going to come from running off of motion, running off of a lot of screens. And ultimately, a lot of it is dictated by what one guy can do taking that opportunity, bending the defense a little bit and creating for someone else uh, to, you know, keep that moving because Steve Kerr, he's like a half second or less guy. He's like, you got to decide whether to dribble pass shoot right when you get the ball. Um, That's where I think there would be a little adjustment is, you know, I feel like Zach is really good at creating advantages, but he also will kind of, kind of take his time looking for them. You know, like he'll work, He'll work through a pick and roll, trying to screen and rescreen and look for the shot, look for the pass, whatever it is. Um, well, that's where I think the adjustment would come is mentality. Like, hey, we are go, right. go, go. You either go for it and you try to take the shot or you pass it up and you give it to someone else. Um, but in terms of the talent, I mean, it's all there. Zach is one of the better high volume shooters in this league, especially with the difficulty of the shots he takes. And I think, you know, there are defensive questions there. I think Zach's defense gets attacked a little too hard from my perspective. You know, I feel like we have, we have assumed, we have assumed it's bad and we just, everyone says it's bad. So we don't look to see actually how bad is it. Um, And I think he's generally been fine at times for what he is in terms of a primary ball handler. 
Uh, so I think it would be really good. And especially when you look at Steph Curry, you know, 35 years old, still having to do it all himself. Um, you start to wonder like, okay, what would a real number two do to him? Would it improve his game? Would it give him a little more longevity? Would he be able to, you know, go deeper into the season and playing at a high level because he's not having to, you know, run for his life just to try to get the 30 points we need him to score on a game-to-game basis just to be able to squeak by. Right. Yeah, I think, and it's something that we've always talked about, is that Zach Levine is just forever fighting career-long narratives that may may be true still or aren't really current at all. But like you said, it's a lot of things that people just assume is true because I don't imagine that a lot of people are really taking the time to break down Zach Levine game tape from rebuilding Bulls Mm -hmm. teams of the past and, you know, however many years. So it's just a really tough battle. And his contract to me, I don't think his contract is really awful, but there's just like this general consensus that Zach Levine is just this really terrible contract that no team can take on. And I, I don't know, I just don't really see it. I mean, he's still, you know, an all-star level um, offensive talent um, at the bare minimum to me. So um, when, when if it's not the Warriors, and from what you're saying, it sounds like there's a, at least a, a curious basketball fit and that he could come in and provide some value that would at least help Steph a little bit, but there would be a little bit of adjustment into that offense. But if it's not a team like the Golden State Warriors, who who do you as a team that makes sense to take on Zach Levine in, in a, in a deal, assuming that there is like, assuming that it, it's guaranteed that he's moved to the deadline, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely, some teams to think about there. Um, I've seen it floated out there a couple times, but I think Philly would be a really interesting fit. Mm. Um, you know, obviously after coming off James Harden and that whole dramatic sequence, as it usually is with James, um, they find themselves with an MVP, a guy who's going out there and dominating offensively, especially from a scoring standpoint, like few bigs we've ever seen. Uh, Joel is just, you know, he's a walking 30 and 10 every night. Mm. And the pressure he puts on them is like nobody else. But when, you know, and he has a great partnership with Tyrese Maxey. Obviously Tyrese, one of the up and coming, like rising star guards in the game. But, you know, as we mentioned before, talking about like, finding these fits where you have an established talent and then you have up and coming talent rising to meet that, it can be hard to figure that out. And there have been some times when Tyrese Maxey, you know, when Joel Embiid doesn't play, he has a very hard time getting it going. And the minutes where Embiid's not playing can be a little rough. Uh, So that's where I think that kind of Levine move makes a lot of sense because now it's not just, Oh, okay. Joel's off the floor, panic, panic, panic. Like, mm. now you can sort of balance the cohesion of, okay, Joel is used to being the guy. Joel's off the floor. Maybe these are the minutes that we give to Zach as sort of the primary creator, or Zach and Maxi can sort of be playing off each other and trying to figure that out. Um, I think he would add a lot of really necessary scoring balance to this team. 
And especially when you consider the fact they're just loaded with perimeter defenders. Um, you know, we've seen really good stuff out of DeAnthony Melton to this point. Like he's always consistently just awesome. Um, I, I love, I still love what Nicholas Batum brings to things. Like he's still been consistently great. And, you know, that's, that's a team that would really interest me because not only are they in the contending conversation right now, but I think they would be able to like balance things a little more to help Zach be comfortable where it's like, Hey, these 10 to 12 minutes where Joel is off the floor, those are yours. Do your thing. Be the incredible ball dominant scorer that we know you can be. But then when we bring this whole lineup together, you know, how do you figure out your dynamic in being maybe the number two option, maybe the number three, some nights. Um, and especially, you know, with a guy, when you're a guy like Zach and you go from being the person that the defense fixates on every game to now they're all paying attention to Joel Embiid and right. I get to make things happen by moving around, running off the screens, um, you know, helping distract uh, defenders from going and helping in the post on Joel. Like there's so many things that I think could really elevate both Zach's game and Philadelphia's game if he was the addition there. I think that's a big key with Zach. Even when you talk about playing with stuff, um, having somebody that takes that much pressure off, that much gravity, uh, as as off of you, um, like when I know like B-ball index does these gradings as far as how, what, how your shot profile, and Zach has consistently been as far as on the Bulls, as far as open shot openness as a shooter as like a graded as an F. Like he's defended at a very high level like he's hounded essentially but he's the shooting is always graded out like a b a a b or whatever if you have you uh and it just kind of makes you envision what if he got to play with somebody like joel or stuff imagine that then like imagine having a guy that can shoot lights out with somebody constantly defending him but then all of a sudden now gets all these moments and and throughout the game where he has no one defending him or like just people forget Zach's on the court. That would be that would be pretty amazing. Uh and I think the results would be just outstanding in that overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you go from being like the guy who gets all the offensive attention for a team that's been, you know, average to below average the last few years. Um not that that's a small feat, you know, there's only 30 teams in the NBA. There's 7 billion people in the world. And here is Zach Levine as a guy who's running the offense for like, even just an average team, super impressive. And so as difficult as that is, when he gets to move up to that next level of, okay, now I'm playing off MVP type guys. I'm playing off guys who have to be stopped at all costs or they will ruin your night how do i get to adjust my game how do i adjust to life being a little bit easier and you know getting some simpler shots but still having to work as hard to get those open shots um yeah that would be that'd be a really interesting dynamic to see play out because i've always believed in zach as a player i feel like i don't know what it is of him as a person or just his archetype where it's like the score first shooting guard just kind of gets a little 
little harped on unnecessarily sometimes, but you know, I feel like you know, no so well some offense to the Bulls, but sometimes I feel like the context kind of just gets unfairly put on the players sometimes and mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't that shouldn't take away from the greatness of an individual player. The uh, one as good as Zach is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, Zach. I think Zach it's just a lot of unfair, unfair stuff that always gets thrown his way, and he, he's just continuously battling it throughout, throughout his career. So we'll we'll see how his trade market opens up. I mean, we continue to see so many reports and tweets that his trade market is bare and there's nothing really active. And you know, if the Bulls, if the Bulls wanted to trade him today, they would, but there's just no takers at all. So I don't know if the Bulls are going to have to come down from their price to meet the market, but it, it's seeming like that may end up being the case if the Bulls have a really um, high price on them right now. Let's wrap with this. Um, we saw all of the reaction on Friday from the Bulls Ring of Honor uh, ceremony where they bought back so many uh, legendary Bulls players. Of course, Phil Jackson there and, um, you know, team uh, players from those championship teams, everyone in attendance. And it was such a, a really special night. And of course, it was ruined because um, the uh, wife of uh, former Bulls GM Jerry Krause, who is, um, of course, you know, uh, deceased, but um, he was uh, or she was he was booed, but she was there in his honor, in his place. And it, it just went viral with so much reaction from everyone seeing this moment and uh we even saw we even heard Stacy King uh you know criticize all of the fans that were booing in attendance at the start of the third quarter as well Steve Kerr said something so i mean everyone was firmly just standing by um you know Jerry Krause and his wife and it it, it was just really saddening and disheartening that such a you know harmless moment to celebrate these great teams turned into something that just was full of hate and just is always going to be now remembered in the past for that moment specifically. So uh, I just wanted to open the floor. Like, I mean, what were your thoughts on everything that um, went down Friday, um, you know, with this and, you know, as there's been so much discussion about it, you've seen, there's been people who have been, you know, saying it's, you know, the effect of the last dance and they're saying, Oh, Michael Jordan contributed to this because of it, you know, because of how that documentary was uh, produced and whatnot, but uh, just what were your thoughts overall about everything that went down on Friday with that? Man, that was just, it was weird too. Cause I was watching it, you know, with friends, we were just like skipping around league pass and going through all these games and, you know, we were like, Oh, bulls are doing the ring of honor thing. Like let's kind of tune in, but you know, everyone's talking. We're all just kind of like looking around and it's like, wait, what is going on up there? Like, why is she crying? What is going on? We like turn the volume up and then you just kind of slowly put the pieces together. And it's just like, it's just so sickening for so many reasons. Like, you know, first things first, like, I feel like have respect for the dead is something that could be so drilled in to everyone Um, you know, regardless of how you felt about that person, like there's, there's no point to bad mouthing people who have died and especially doing that in the presence of that person's wife, like, 
the widow of this man is in the building and you're deciding to do this to boo everything over what something that is essentially trivial like at the end of the day this is just basketball man you know like we people make a living off of it you know like i don't want to diminish the importance of sports but at the end of the day that's what it is it's sports and you know i'm not gonna we there's no need to even like relitigate like what jerry krause did and didn't do while he was the gm because none of that should matter you know like the man the man has died and Mm. you're still choosing to bring up things that he did 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago in this ceremony. That's supposed to be a huge positive thing and recalling all of the good that happened around that era of Chicago bulls. I mean, there's just so much, so much wrong with that. And I'm glad that, you know, I saw the bulls, um, put out a statement for that. I think it was right. Michael Reisdorf put out a statement and having Stacey King on the call to just saying how immensely disrespectful that was. Um, I don't know who it was in the camera, but we kind of saw from that video, like one of the players was standing behind Thelma, like yeah, I think it was Ron Harper. her. It was, it was, yeah, was it Ron? It was Ron Harper. I think um, it was Ron Harper, right? Yeah. I think it was Ron Harper. Yeah. I, I believe so. I can't remember right now yeah. though. Yeah, but it's just like, you know, you have so many <laughs> integral parts of the Bulls from broadcasting to management to the former players, like immediately stepping in to say, hey, this is wrong. Don't do this to her. Hmm. It just it just makes what the fans did seem even worse, you know, just, oh, it's so horrible. Yeah. It's just like, I get the whole, like, if it was a, a bad human being, but it's sports like whatever errors he made and and it's kind of fabricated just because he was made into a villain more though more so than uh what he was but like i said just sports he's passed away this is a moment of celebration uh you know he's not there to defend himself anymore like what do you like what are you holding a grudge for like this man let's let's be real about this yeah he had michael jordan uh, he started off in Michael Jordan, fair, but he's done. He made a lot of great moves to contribute to this dynasty. He, yeah. the big one, traded Olden Polonese for Scottie Pippen. Same draft, he drafted Horace Grant. Um, he went and got Tony Kukoc. He scouted Tony Kukoc. People didn't know about Tony Kukoc. He went and got this guy on this Bulls team. Um, he went and got guys like Steve Kerr, shooters and stuff like that. Uh, he went and got Dennis Rodman for Will Rodman, Perdue. Yep. Like, you, all these moves, these happened because of Jerry Krause. Like, let's be real about that. It didn't happen because Jordan went out and, hey, I want you, I want you on my team. Like, the first thing, it's funny, funny thing with Rodman, the, one of the first things Michael said to Dennis is, if you screw this up, I'll kill you. Like Michael never wanted Dennis on the team at the at the start of it. So like when you talk about all these things, it's like what are we holding a grudge for anymore? Why? Like let it go. Let's let it fucking go, man. And like I said, booing him and then they can't they continue to boo. Well, I saw at least while uh Thelma, his widowed wife, was on the screen to continue to boo, and you saw her start crying. You're seeing her crying because of this, and it's like 
like I was just I was just I was disgusted. I was pissed off. I was like, what the hell? Like this is this should not be one person in that stadium that's booing this moment. You know, it was just yeah, it was just it was very dis you know, heartening and it, it was just like really just sad to see it happen. Right. And you know, even I mean, the list of moves that you named, I mean, crazy how you can just like you can forget about some like you didn't even mention um trading Oakley for Cartwright. I mean, yeah, Oakley. Oh, right, yeah, right. Yeah, like that was a big trade because the Bulls needed a guy in the middle. So that that was really pivotal to the Bulls continuing to win titles. So Kraus was objectively a very good general manager. It wasn't like, you know, he was a GM who just purely benefited from having Michael Jordan on the team. He made good moves and he was smart and savvy. We can say whatever, you know, we, we can talk about how he felt the, the type of credit or level of credit he felt he deserved. That's a completely different discussion, but there is no Bulls dynasty without Jerry Krause. And I don't think you can boo someone who is really not there to defend himself, especially when you're trying to celebrate these championship teams that, you know, the Bulls, one day the Bulls may win another championship, but we'll never have that feeling of these teams with the Bulls ever again. We'll we'll never have anything like this. NBA sports will never see anything like this. And he was such a pivotal part of it. So, you know, to to boo all of that is just it's insane, man. Like I I mean, obviously my heart goes out the to to Delma Krauss, but you know, it's just really like disheartening as a Bulls fan because it's just like, man, this is just a, this is just a moment to celebrate. And now when you look back in the past five, 10 years from now, people will always be able to reference this type of thing. It's just a really terrible look and it should have just been something that, Hey, it happened. You know, we got a little bit of nostalgia and that was it. And now it's, it's forever. Just like yeah. in the books or something just like crazy. Yeah. It's, it's going to especially... go down to as, no, I was just saying, it's, it's going to go down to as one of the disgusting moments in sports, Chicago sports, like yeah, things that we talk yeah. about. It, it, it just is. It, it's, 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 it sucks. Like, it's sports. It's it, That's all it is. Yeah. It's sports. It's entertainment. <laughs> There's more to life than sports and entertainment. And, like, you can't do things like that. Like, I don't understand where people that think that that was okay. Yeah, it's yeah. like you got to move past it, man. It's just like right. you got to, you know, whatever animosity you had about that dynasty not going on for another year or whatever, whatever, like we got six championships out of that. Like there are a lot of teams in the NBA who still don't have one, two, three, right. Right. six championships from all of that. And he he made a lot of moves that were good, made some moves that were initially unpopular, but panned out like the guy was the guy was smart man so yeah it, it's just it really sucks to see and um you know i i hope charlie, that, i think you had oh sorry i think charlie had another uh thought oh go ahead charlie. yeah yeah one last note you know the point you made Celine. like life's too short to be angry about sports you know like when it's going good good and then you know you can have your little like venting sessions with your friends when your team sucks or whatever but like to especially hang up on that after this long when like you said you've won six championships which is something most organizations 
don't ever come close to. They don't even get one. You get six in a decade. Like that's something special to hold on to forever. And you know, I'm generally it generally annoys me when play like fans boo. Um, right. You know, unless unless it's like, oh hey, that's Josh Giddy out there, like. F that yeah. guy. We're going <laughs> to boo him. Then I'm like, all right, yeah, do your thing. Like, boo the man. Whatever you got to do. Um, but if you're really trying to be negative and you're looking for someone to boo in Chicago for why this went wrong, he's sitting up there in the owner's box. Right. <laughs> he's, he's there. He's he's still alive. Like, boo him all you want. <laughs> like, that, I feel, would be fully justified. You know, boo the guy who gave Jerry Krause this awful decision to make, but I feel like that's so played up in last dance. Um, and, you know, all the conversations about like how much ego and all the things and who wanted the credit, Jerry Reinsdorf wanted a whole lot of that credit. <laughs> he had a, right. he had a big old ego conflicting with Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan. So, you know, if you're going to go out there and try to boo someone and hold on to this grudge that, really is, in my opinion, just kind of like a footnote on one of the greatest sports dynasties we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Go, boo, go boo the money man. Like Boo the guy who <laughs> made this happen um, instead of booing, yeah, a dead man with his widow in the presence who's yeah. extremely distressed by that, as she yeah. should be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. It's it just not well said, man. It. Yeah, I, I, w- I wish the whole thing could be could have been better. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, these things these things aren't comparable, but you know, you know, even MJ not being there, you know, and you know, Robin not being there, um, like just yeah, I, I don't know. Didn't even give a, a a video. He he didn't even yeah, acknowledge yeah. anything. Yeah, Scotty. Uh, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think this whole thing was poorly. Like, I think it was like I felt. Honestly, I mean, I have no way to prove it, but I, I feel like it was this thing was planned like six weeks ago <laughs> because the <laughs> attendance was terrible. Yeah, because normally you hear about Ring of Honor stuff in the beginning of the off season or the prior season, right? Or right. like when they're retiring a jersey or doing something this big, you don't hear about it like a, a month before it's going to happen, right? Because it right, was a right. brand new information to everyone. So I almost feel like this, oh, crap, ticket sales are bad. Let's do this right really quick. Let's throw this together. Nostalgia, like Chicago and Chicago nostalgia sells. We love our guys that play (laughs) old. Yeah, we love We eat that up. Like White Sox fans to this day talk about 2005. That's all they talk about, 2005 White Sox. Um, You know, 85 Bears, the the (laughs) The Cubs World Series team, that's gonna oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's gonna be a good that's one. That's <laughs> gonna carry you forever. You know, so like I feel like that that was the nostalgia play to sell tickets and this was poorly planned. I feel like they planned it, but I was granted Rodman didn't make it because of weather, and that's something yeah. I mean, maybe you could have not had it in January. Um, I get that they wanted Steve Kerr there, but you could have done it on a day Steve Kerr wasn't coaching, just so he would be there. I mean, there there's you know, you can make up excuses all you want, but I, I just think this was planned in a in a in a quick, you know, decision to do it because they saw how bad the season was going. Right. It it just didn't feel full, man. It's just I don't know how you do it with 
was so I mean, yeah, it was great to see Phil back in the UC. We haven't seen Phil in the United Center in like a like as a at least as like a I mean, not counting like um like coaching is all like, but we haven't seen Phil in a minute. So I mean that was yeah. great to see, but um yeah, I, I wish they I wish they had really really taken their time to make this one count because there just aren't gonna be too many other times where you'll be able to see all of these guys together again. So um really taking the time to really plan this out well and structure it well and you know that that would have been really really great to see but you know who knows maybe maybe we will uh get something down the road to make up for it because as you said nostalgia sells and um this won't be the last time they uh try to do it but um charlie thank you for joining us today man on bulls go we really appreciated uh you chopping it up with us about the warriors and the bulls today man can you let our listeners know where they can follow you at, what you're working on, and just feel free to promote anything you got. Yeah, so you can check me out on Twitter or X, I guess, uh, at ClayTheist11. Uh, that's where I'm posting all of my work. Um, like you said, at the top, Edward, uh, I'm host of the Warriors Invitational podcast. So every week we got a couple shows. One will be breaking down what's going on with the team. Um, and then another, we'll bring a guest on to preview a game of the week. They'll talk about their team, uh, their whole individual journey that got them to where they at. Uh, so that's been a really fun thing. Um, getting to talk to a lot of different people and you'll hear a lot of different team perspectives on there. And also you can catch my work at the swish Um, I guess you could call me lucky that this is the year I decided to pivot away from uh, doing full-time Warriors coverage and start to look more around the league. Um, so you can check out my uh, my Finding a Role series I've been doing, exploring a bunch of different guys around the NBA, coming to new roles in the league, new teams, um, really taking steps and making themselves NBA-caliber guys. Uh, so that's been a lot of fun. And you can check that out on theswishtheory.com. All right. Yeah, yo, check out Warriors Invitational. Check out Swish Theory. Charlie does really great work, y'all. Please check it out. And again, thank you for coming on, man. Salim, you got any final thoughts before we wrap, man? Thanks to Charlie. Um, yeah, definitely check out his work. I've and very much enjoyed a, a lot of his articles. He's a very high-level ball knower. So uh, you learn stuff. I, I always like learning things. Like, I, I don't. You know, I don't have the same eye as a lot of people, uh, but like I like to learn so that I can kind of catch up in that regards. So uh, he's definitely one of the people where you can you read his, his articles and say, oh, you know, I didn't see it that way before. But you kind of you see the vision after after you get done, you know, taking his in his content um, and then. We'll see what happens with the Bulls, man. They're uh, you know, they they won that Spurs game. Uh, it. it Unfortunately, without Wemby, it still came down to the wire. They're they're still notorious for blowing big leads. They had like a what a 20, 18, 20 point lead and they completely blew that. No, they're down fifteen right now to the Cavs. Not looking uh, good. They are being <laughs> up. Yeah, not looking good tonight. The Cavs, they can't beat the Cavs. Cavs are just a really tough matchup for them. Um but yeah, we'll see what happens. That uh, this month is like you and I have talked about this month is very soft. As far as schedules, not very, but like softer as far as schedules go. Um, yeah. If they can't get to 500 or better, it's like it's going to be bad, I think. I mean, 
Uh, as is there right now, they're on pace for 38 wins. So on the season. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm firmly at, everyone knows where I am at with this team, but we'll <laughs> see what happens. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're looking firmly in play in territory, which I mean, Hey, mm-hmm. if that's what you want and cool. Um, yeah. 38, 30. I mean, I can see a 41 and 41 season at the end of the day, 40 and 42. I think we both went under that initially. I, I can't remember what I said. I think maybe I said like, yeah, 40 wins. I can't remember. I might have said 40, but I, yeah. it, that they started off even worse than that. And like I said, they may yeah. end up with less. Who's up? So yeah. we'll see. Yeah. We were, we were both really low on them to start. And then, yeah, it's just been, it's just been ups and downs with it. But yeah, they, they had a chance this month to get to 500 and, and still do, but um, maybe it won't be happening. Um, uh, with, with this game, but uh, we'll see what happens with the Bulls. But uh, that concludes today's show. As always, check out our past shows wherever you get your podcasts on Apple, on Spotify, on Podbean. Thank you again to Charlie Cummings for joining us on Bulls Gold. Please check out his work on Switch Theory and check out the Warriors Invitational and check us out next time. So, for Slings Through I am Edward Schuler. This has been Bulls Gold, and we will catch you next time, Bulls fans. <laughs>